a reading from Exodus 24. In this reading, Moses climbs to the mountaintop where he will receive the law and experiences communion with God. May we hear these ancient words echo in our own story. Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. And then Moses went up the mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Gospel reading is from Matthew 17, in which Jesus, like Moses before him, climbs to the mountaintop and experiences communion with God. As we encounter this story of transfiguration, may we find ourselves in the story and be changed in the process. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, for us to be here, if you wish. I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Kate Bowler is still alive. She's still researching and writing in her work as a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's still raising her son, who is about five years old now, best I can tell. And she's even written another book. Now, if you haven't been with us for our Wednesday night book study, this might not mean much to you, but it is miraculous. I say Kate Bowler is still alive because in 2015, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Her book, written in the wake of that diagnosis, is called Everything Happens for a Reason and other lies I've loved. In it, she writes about her struggle to come to terms with her new reality, the struggle of realizing that 
chemotherapy was not going to do the trick. She talks about the pain of looking at her young family, her husband and son, who was just a year old when she got the news, and thinking, and these are her words, what a poor substitute this would be for the life she had promised them. She narrates the emotional roller coaster her family has been on, getting her into a clinical trial for an immunotherapy drug that has managed so far to keep the cancer at bay. Kate Bowler now characterizes herself as someone living with cancer, receiving a new lease on life every 90 days when she gets the result of the latest CT scan. I've seen her write elsewhere about the difficulty in communicating what it is to have chronic cancer, to feel like every three months she's walking to the edge of a precipice, praying each time that a bridge will appear to get her to the other side. Live for three months, take a deep breath, and hope to start over again. People don't have a category for this kind of experience. She writes, it feels almost impossible to transmit the kernel of truth. I am not dying. I am not terminal. I am keeping vigil in the place of almost death. I stand in the in-between where everyone must pass but so few can remain. Given the nature of her work, Bowler recognizes that her circumstances are ironic, to say the least. You see, in the years preceding her diagnosis, she had spent her entire professional life researching a particular modern-day Christian heresy that has come to be known as the prosperity gospel. For those of you unfamiliar with the prosperity gospel, it's a theological perspective that says God wants to bless you if you will just believe hard enough, pray long enough, and maybe mail in a check. And if that still doesn't sound familiar, let's just say it's the theology you have to thank for the reality that every cashier you encounter now concludes your purchase with have a blessed day as you walk out the door. And Kate Bowler was living a blessed life. She was married to her high school sweetheart, newly hired at her prestigious alma mater in the first academic job she had applied for, and mother to a sweet baby boy after years of struggling with infertility. She had just published her first book, a definitive history of the prosperity gospel in the U.S., titled Blessed when the physician's assistant called to say, I'm sorry, but it's cancer and it's everywhere. The hashtag blessed phenomenon that has swept our culture has brought us to the point where we claim as blessings anything from photos of our picture-perfect families around the holidays to an unforeseen upgrade on a rental car. <laughs> and it has only entered the vernacular after it first entered the hearts and the beliefs of countless of the American faithful. 
Even the parts of our culture that wouldn't be duped by the not-so-subtle greed of many of the televangelists promoting this prosperity gospel, they still internalized it in more implicit ways. So while we might not come out and say that we really believe that God helps those who help themselves, we still find ourselves shocked when suffering comes to us or to someone we deem doesn't deserve it, as if deserving had anything to do with it at all. That's how the prosperity gospel gets a hook, though. It promises control. It promises certainty. It promises a formula for a predictable outcome in this utterly unpredictable life. And so many of us cling to these promises, whether we call it the prosperity gospel or not, because the alternative is so terrifyingly uncertain. There are many aspects of the prosperity gospel that trouble me, but the one I struggle with most is how anyone can reconcile this theology of earned blessings with the cross, with the suffering of God. And I know we're not there yet. Lent doesn't begin until next week. The liturgically minded of you will remind me after the service. I hear you. Today, we observe Transfiguration Sunday, the day that transitions us from the wonder of Epiphany, searching the skies for the star that will guide us, onto the darker road toward Calvary. Today, we are on the mountaintop with Jesus, watching alongside Peter, James, and John as we behold a vision we cannot comprehend. Prophets of old, light beyond reckoning, a booming voice from the heavens, or is it a whisper on the wind? But the thing about a mountaintop is that you can see for miles. For Jesus, the cross is already in view. When all was said and done, as they sloped back down the mountainside, Jesus instructed the disciples to keep this one to themselves until after Easter had come. And what he's telling them is that the only way to really understand what you've just seen is to view it from the other side of the cross. I have a feeling that didn't sit so well with Peter. He's not really a sit-with-the-mystery-and-contemplate-it type, nor, I imagine, very good at keeping secrets. And he already had some making up to do on behalf of his ego, having been interrupted by the very voice of God earlier that day in the middle of unrolling his blueprints for the three little houses he was going to build for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And who are we to judge? What would you have done in this in his place when confronted with the glowing form of your mentor and teacher, accompanied by equally shiny versions of the two most revered prophets in your faith. Maybe setting up camp was the appropriate cultic response to a vision like that. 
Maybe it was just the first thing he knew to do and he wanted to do something. Or maybe it had to do with that very human part of us that wants so desperately to make manageable that which is unmanageably beautiful. In his offer to go ahead and start construction, I hear in Peter's voice something familiar to me. It's the sound of a heart that's afraid of allowing the full weight of this goodness before him to settle in. Because despite how good it is, it's somehow more than he can bear. Maybe he was afraid it would be over too soon. Maybe he feared that without tangible evidence, he would lose it once it was gone. Maybe he just needed a distraction. He couldn't allow himself to dwell on the beauty of this vision because he was afraid it would make his real life pale in comparison. And if that happened, how could he ever go back to living it? Maybe you don't hear Peter that way. Maybe instead what you hear in his plan for these makeshift tabernacles is a person who just wants to hang on to the sacred encounter he's had even when the moment has passed. This is good, he says. It's good for us to be here. Let's settle in for a while. No need to rush back into business as usual. And to that, Peter... I would say there is wisdom in that. And beware. There's great wisdom in being present to the sacred in the world around us, in marking it that we might return to it later when we need to be reminded of whatever we knew to be most deeply true when we were fully attuned to the Spirit of God. It's like that saying, don't doubt in the darkness what you've known to be true in the light. The easiest way out of that dark place is through rituals and tokens of remembrance, an object or a practice or a journal entry. These are gifts we can give ourselves as markers on the path. So maybe for Peter, this act of constructing a shelter was his way of commemorating the incredible experience of the transfiguration. Of course, we don't know. But if it were, I would applaud him for the foresight to know that what has felt so tangible and real one moment might blow away on the next breeze, though that does not make it any less real. That's why we need the reminder. The trap we can fall into, though, is when we mistake the reminder for the thing it's meant to remind us of. The trap in building a tabernacle is that you might begin to worship the tent rather than the God who is meant to inhabit it. Worse yet, you might begin to think that the God of the universe could be kept inside a tent at all. Isn't this our most constant struggle with all religion? From the moment Moses came down Mount Sinai, fresh from his encounter with the living God, the first warning of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, 
has been put to the test. It can become so tempting to mistake the means for the end. There's one teacher who says that all methods are traps. Prayer, meditation, scripture, these methods can open portals to God. But in the end, we don't want to become people who pray, people who meditate, people who read scripture. We want to be people who know God. The methods are tools that we have to use with a loose grip, not a clenched fist, lest they become an idol. I think there's probably one more reason that Peter might have objected to Jesus asking them to keep their mouths shut about what they had seen. And it's a reason that has not much at all to do with what they actually saw and everything to do with what Peter saw in Jesus. Just six days before the transfiguration, Peter and Jesus had engaged in another important discussion. Who do you say that I am? Jesus had asked his friend. The question was loaded. I kind of think he already knew what Peter was going to say. I love the character of Peter. Obviously, I named my son after him, but he's just the kind of guy who wears his heart and his hopes on his sleeve. And his hopes for Jesus were high. You are the Messiah he had proclaimed, invoking the most sacred of traditions, the belief that God would restore the fortunes of Israel through a political and religious leader. And in response, just as he would do on the mountaintop, Jesus told the disciples to keep what they had witnessed to themselves. Now, if I'm Peter, and I've had the day I've had and the week I've had, I'm getting a little tired of Jesus telling me important things and then telling me I can't tell anyone else. And maybe underneath that, I'm even starting to fear that Jesus isn't going to live up to my hopes. That my messianic theology with its concrete plan for how the Messiah will operate isn't going to bear out in real life. Peter just wants a predictable roadmap into the future, a roadmap toward liberation, ironically enough. When Jesus holds up a hand to slow him down, he's offering Peter the chance to see that underneath his need for predictability lies the truth that no matter what may come in this utterly unpredictable world, God is here already and we are loved and it is enough this is where liberation lies this is the truth that Kate Bowler has come to believe most deeply and to proclaim there are plenty of lies we have loved she says Everything happens for a reason, or even everything is going to work out. But these are lies, and they won't satisfy us. 
and they won't liberate us. When Kate was first in the hospital, she thought she was about to die. It's a state of mind she lives in now, constantly. But in those first days, she writes about how, in contrast to what you would expect from a prosperity gospel that calls you to work harder, pray longer, be better, in order to steal time from death, she writes that it wasn't fear that overtook her, that characterized her days. It was love. When death seemed just a breath away, which in truth it always is, what she found was that she felt deeply and profoundly loved. It was a feeling that carried her, a feeling like floating. In a beautiful and terrible way, it was her mountaintop experience. And as with any mountaintop experience, eventually she had to come back down. And she writes about the fear that did strike when she realized those feelings might fade. What would she be left with then? One of the benefits of being a professor at Duke Divinity School is that she had a generous network of theologians, historians, even nuns to reach out to and ask for advice. And each of them knew what she was describing, this floating on the love of God, either because they had experienced it themselves or they had read about it in the great works of Christian theology. And each one told her, yes, those feelings will go. The sense of God's presence will go. And there will be no formula for how to get it back. But, they told her, when those feelings recede like the tides, they will leave an imprint. Somehow, they said, she would be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. No matter what it is that we ourselves are holding to tightly, may the grace of this God who comes to us unbidden, may it loosen our stony grip. May we learn to trust in the liberating truth that God is here and we are loved and it is enough. And in receiving that grace, may we learn to live graciously with open hands and open hearts. Amen.